tired of me. Sure, you can uh, remember where we left off so you can pick up where we are now. So we're going to start with a pretty significant review. I'm indebted to Brother Gene Clover for uh, filling in for me last Wednesday. And since it's been two weeks since we've been engaged in this particular study, we want to examine some things that we left off with. And so if you recall, two Wednesday nights ago, we were studying textual variants that appear in the manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, just to give an overview of where we're at, we're examining these uh, four different areas that relate to how we got the Bible. The first being the, uh, um, oh, I've already forgotten where I'm, at, where I'm at. Hold on, let me get my notes here. The first being the inspiration of Scripture. That's where we began early in this series. The second category is where we're still at. It's the transmission of Scripture. It's an examination of how God's Word has been preserved and passed down over the centuries. And we spent some time looking at the significant manuscripts that exist of the over 5,000 that we have. We, we examined some of the, the significant ones, and then we've been spending some time talking about what makes manuscripts valuable. And we've noted that the age of a manuscript is one of those factors that uh, assist in determining the, the value of a, a particular manuscript. But then we also talked about textual famul- families, that there are th- three um, significant textual families, that is, groups of manuscripts that share the same Um, text of scripture. But the fact that there are textual families that exist means that there are variations between the manuscripts. That's what we're focused on now is examining why there are variations between one manuscript and another. Why is there different readings of the Greek text in particular? And two weeks ago we started focusing in on these textual variants. And we noted that of the 5,800 manuscripts that we have, that there are some 200,000 known variants between those manuscripts. But we also noted on the second line I've got up here how those variants often get calculated. And so what can happen is if a word is misspelled, in three, the same word misspelled in 3,000 different manuscripts, then that's 3,000 variants. What ends up happening is that there's only about 10,000 places in the whole New Testament that have a variant, and none of them affect doctrine or faith or theology for that matter. Now tonight we're going to get into some, I I believe towards the end of our study tonight, we'll get into some of the more notable variants that appear in Scripture, and you'll, you'll initially think, hey, that passage that has a variant in it that we're talking about right now, that that one affects, uh, or that that one eliminates a verse related to baptism. So how is that not significant? It's not going to be significant because there are other verses that still have the subject of baptism in them. Just because you lose Mark chapter 16, potentially, as a variant, where we have a very popular verse about baptism that doesn't affect Acts 2.38, you still have the teaching elsewhere in Scripture. That's what's meant by the idea that it doesn't affect the variants that we're dealing with don't affect doctrine. They don't eliminate a, a, a doctrinal belief or a, a doctrinal practice for that matter. The other thing I wanted you to notice again is that last line that the New Testament is 99 plus percent pure. That means 99% of the text of the New Testament is unquestioned, that it doesn't have an issue. 
And I gave you this example of the correlation between the numbers of manuscripts and the number of variants. The more manuscripts you have, the more variants you're going to have. And we've noted that of ancient documents, the New Testament, we have the most manuscripts of. We have 5,800 plus New Testament manuscripts, and there's the potential of finding more as archaeology continues. But then you take a a very uh, popular, very well-known ancient text like the Iliad. It's much older than the New Testament, but it only has 600-something manuscripts in existence today. So it has less evidence for itself. And the more manuscripts you have, more variants you're likely to find. And, And I gave this example that the presence of variants actually can help you determine the original text with these two Oh, wait, I clicked it forward on my computer, but not on here. With these two statements, both lines have a variant in them, have a mistake in them. But when the two, the two sentences are paired together, you can figure out what the correct sentence is supposed to be because the variant is in different locations. And I need you all to repeat that statement with you right now. I will not fall asleep during Kyle's sermons. All right, so we started two weeks ago looking at unintentional variants, unintentional mistakes. I'm going to do a brief review of what unintentional mistakes are. So, for instance, you have a wrong division of words. We have talked about how in certain documents they're written in all capital letters with no spacing. And this example comes from Mark chapter 10 and verse 40, where there are six letters in the middle of this verse that could be divided into two words or retained as one single word. It doesn't necessarily affect the reading a whole lot, but it does change things to some degree. And so certain documents will uh, take this and, and, and consider it to be one word. Other, other manuscripts will divide that word into two words. And that creates a variant. So it has to do with the uh, wrong division of words, which even we are capable of doing with English. So this was, one, this was the example we had of wrong division of words. There's another issue of confusion of letters, of reading uh, the, these Greek capital letters and confusing them for a different letter. Here's the uh, different capital letters and how they could be misconstrued. Like uh, on this top line, the theta, omicron, and, and an alternative sigma symbol could all be easily confused in handwritten documents. Or the, the gamma and the pi and the tau all could easily, depending on the handwriting of the copyist, be misconstrued. And so you have, I, I give these examples of letters that could be deemed, um, that could be misrepresented or misunderstood throughout the copying of a text. And we have a couple of examples in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5, as well as Jude chapter 1 and verse 12, where this likely happened, where a copyist read the letters incorrectly copied the letters incorrectly, and it doesn't have a significant effect on the interpretation of the text, but it does change it. Another thing that can happen, in addition to wrong division of words and confusion of letters, is something that's called dittography. And dittography is when a copyist accidentally repeats a letter, a symbol, or a word that should only be written once. And here's an example of how it would happen with you and I. You've probably seen this happen when you're typing on your computer or typewriter if you're old enough, typing a text in your phone. You repeat a letter twice or you repeat a word twice. I do that a lot in my sermon notes. I'll have 
two ises or two of something else doubled up somehow. That's dictography, and it happens even in Scripture. There's an example of it with an entire phrase repeated in Acts chapter 19 and verse 34, where one of our most well-preserved uh, and, and, and oldest manuscripts, Codex Vaticanus, repeats the line, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians in Acts 19 verse 34. So there's an example of dictography. Another way in which unintentional variants occur is through homeoteliotone. That's where a section of the text is accidentally skipped because as the copyist is reading it, he reads a phrase that ends up being repeated later in the text. And as they, he writes down one portion, he goes back to find that phrase and discovers the second appearance of that phrase instead of the first appearance and skips the whole line. And I mentioned how I do that often when I'm reconciling bank statements. And I might have five or six different purchases from Chick-fil-A that are in the exact same amount. And as I'm reconciling, I look at the wrong one when I return. I, I record one, and then I go back and look, and I record, I go to the, the next one. It's later in the statement, and I skip everything in between. An example of this happens in the New Testament in Luke chapter 10 and verse 32 in particular. That entire verse gets omitted in Codex Sinaiticus. And it's because if you look at the text on the screen as I've provided it in Greek, you have the same word appearing at the end of verse 31 and at the end of verse 32. What likely happened is the copyist finished copying verse 31, and then when he looked, he looked down to write it, and when he looked back at the original manuscript, he found the second appearance of that word at the end of verse 32 and picked up the uh, copying from there and accidentally omitted everything in verse 32. And this happens quite frequently. This one is quite um, abundant in manuscripts. A fifth way an unintentional mistake can occur is through homophones. Now, we know what homophones are. They are um, words that sound alike but are spelled differently. And, I, and here's a bunch of examples in English just so you get the idea of what we're talking about. The same thing exists in the, the copying of Greek manuscripts, particularly in scribal schools. They would have a, they, they had scribal schools were places where you'd have a bunch of copyists gathered together who would listen to somebody read the manuscript and they would write it as they listened to it. Now there's a problem in that situation in that if you hear somebody say one word but you are writing a different spelling of that word, it can create a variant. And so it, just using these English examples makes it it's easy for us to understand, hey, I thought I heard this word or I spelled the word this way based on what I heard, and actually I should have spelled it a different way. And some examples of this do, do appear in the New Testament, such as in the case in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, the word I have highlighted on the screen, both spellings of it are pronounced the same way. Echomen. Echomen. And it can... It doesn't necessarily change the uh, translation drastically, but it does change it to some degree, depending on which one is the original rendering of that word. But the hearing it or, or, or having a homophone version of it where the, there's two words that sound exactly the same but are spelled differently, it can have an effect on creating variants. 
And one final unintentional mistake that can happen is dealing with synonyms and parallels, and I'll explain that real quickly. Uh, for instance, you can have two different prepositions that are spelled differently, that are pronounced differently. And you accidentally insert the wrong one in the text. That's what happens particularly in Roman, uh, not Romans, uh, this is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, where you can see in two different words provided in these two different Greek texts. The top line has an alpha pi omicron and the second line has a epsilon chi. The, uh, both of them would be translated from or away from or since because of. They can be used interchangeably. And what likely happened is a copyist, in recording this, uh, read the text in his mind, inserted the wrong preposition when he went to write it. But these are the unintentional mistakes, the mistakes that a copyist doesn't mean to make. It just happened through errors of the eye or errors of the ear or just errors of judgment in some fashion. They're completely unintentional. But there are also mistakes that occur intentionally. But we need to understand something. When we say that there are intentional mistakes, we're not saying that a copyist wants to mess up Scripture, wants to create a problem in future manuscripts. Normally when there is an intentional mistake, what's happening is the copyist is trying to, in his mind, correct or improve the manuscript that he's dealing with. Intentional mistakes are deliberate alterations of the text, typically resulting from the efforts of a well-meaning scribe who's attempting to improve or correct the text as he copied it from one manuscript to another. It would have been really great if I had put that definition on the screen, wouldn't it? Hindsight. So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you four intentional mistakes that can be observed in manuscripts. The first is a grammatical change. Now this shouldn't surprise us. There are going to be occasions when a copyist discovers a misspelled word. And if you come across a misspelled word, what do you have a tendency to do? Listen, I preach here. If I misspell a word on a PowerPoint, do you know what the first comment I'm going to get out there is? People get excited that they get to point out that I misspelled a word. I've got a text message just from about an hour ago. I accidentally misspelled the, the verb of your that I needed. And the first response was, here's the correct spelling. We're very good at that. We're very good at editing one another. We have this tendency where we, we feel like it needs to happen. And that is the case as copyists are dealing with these Greek manuscripts. They come across a word that they think is spelled incorrectly. Well, let me fix this because I want to preserve God's word correctly. That's the mindset. So let me show you some examples of how this happens in the New Testament. A grammatical change occurs when a copyist changes spelling, grammar, or syntax in an effort to improve the text. 
So go to John chapter 9 with me. John chapter 9, I want you to, to notice this section. John chapter 9, verse 14 through 21. We don't need to read the entirety of this text, but I, I want you to notice that in between these verses, John records a word that will be translated as opened three different times. John chapter 9, verses 14 through 21. Three different times John employs a word that will be translated as opened. The first appearance will be in verse 14, the second in verse 17, and the third in verse 21. This is set in the midst of the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. Now, what's interesting about John's writing here is that the, he uses the same word three times. In all three verses, he's using the same word, but he spells it differently each time. As odd as that sounds. Interestingly, his spellings, his change of spellings, or his... Well, let me get this up. Interestingly, the the changing in spellings that he uses are all legitimate. They're all acceptable spellings of the word. Appearing on the screen, you can see, though I know you're not going to be pronouncing those words anytime soon, but you can see how they are different. You can look the, at verse, chapter, John chapter 9, verse 14. That word has a different letter on the front end. And then you can see how John chapter 9, verse 21 has two different letters right there in the middle. Now, here's what's interesting. On John chapter 9, verse 14, that first letter, which looks like an A, is in fact alpha. It makes an A sound. The John chapter, the verse 17, verse 21, has a, what looks like an N to you and I, but that's called an eta, and it makes an A sound. The, uh, the first one makes an ah sound. So, for us, when you hear the sounds, they're going to sound very similar when these are pronounced, but they're spelled very differently. Here's what's interesting. Let me, hopefully it's interesting. When you look at these three verses in Codex Washington, Washingtonian, Washingtonanius, which is located in D.C. at the Smithsonian, all three words have been changed to match. So what ended up likely happening is a copyist felt that these three words, which are spelled differently by John, needed to match, that, that that grammatical error needed to be fixed. And so by the time you get to this codex, a copyist has decided to make all three words look exactly the same using the word from verse 17. So let me help you see this a little better. This is a comparison of Codex Vaticanus, which is one of our most prized manuscripts, with Codex Washington, that is such a hard one for me to say. It just doesn't flow. Washingtonianus, I can't even say it. So you can see how in the Codex Vaticanus, all three words are spelled differently, but in, in the other Codex, they're all made the same. So a copyist decided the grammar needed to be fixed by the time we got to that second Codex. Codex Vaticanus was written in the... Uh, was, uh, um, written in the 300s or copied in the 300s. Uh, Codex Washington, whatever, was in the 500s, I believe. So you have a span of 
possibly up to 200 years between these two documents. But that is an example of how grammar is intentionally changed by a copyist to make it more correct or to improve it in some fashion. I want to show you another example of how grammar might be intentionally changed. And this comes from Mark chapter 1 and verse 37. In Mark chapter 1 verse 37, what we have here is the involvement of a copyist to change a Greek verb's ending in order to influence the first person or third person interpretation of that passage. Now, the way Greek works, not to get too uh, technical here, but verbs will have a specific ending that will tell you should that be first person singular, first person plural, second person singular, second person plural, third person singular, third person plural. How the verb ends dictates what should be the pronoun in front of it, basically. So in Mark chapter 1 and verse 37, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, they both preserve this, the second word in that sentence, which is pronounced euron, it's in, highlighted there in red. That would be literally translated as a first-person pronoun. And so it would literally be translated, to use that phrase from Mark chapter 1 and verse 37, and he found him, and they said to him. Now notice, the first verb, according to Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, is first person singular. The second verb, third person plural. But it's referring to the same people. If you look at the context of Mark 1 verse 37, it's talking about the disciples going out and finding Jesus who had gone off to pray and telling him what was happening. So it's really, a, the, the verse itself in context is referring to the disciples in a plural form. So here's what happens. Then you get to Codex Alexandrinus and Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus. All these codexes we looked at a few weeks back. They change the ending of that verb to match a third person plural. They want to get to a translation, they want to get to a phrase that says, they found him and they said to him. That would be more correct Greek and even more correct English. And so they changed the verb ending from what they originally had. Some copyists changed the verb ending from the original so that the text would read more fluently. And here's what's interesting. Once they make that change, did you notice in the first Greek line, there's a word in blue? It looks like a K-A-I, it's, it's chi. It means and. There's two ands in that first Greek sentence. You know why? Because they needed that and there since they had a first-person singular verb attached to a third-person plural verb. But once the verbs have the same... Um, uh, ending on them, basically they, they both become third-person plural verbs. They don't need that and in there anymore. So it even took out an, a word when they did the grammatical change. So what you have happening in Mark chapter 1 and verse 37 is the need by a copyist to fix the grammar so that it reads more accurately. It doesn't really change the context for us. It doesn't really affect us. But it's an intentional adjustment so that the grammar is improved. That's one of the ways in which we'll come across intentional 
variants in the New Testament. Another way in which intentional variants expose themselves is through clarification changes. Sometimes a copyist feels the need to provide some clarification in a text that that he feels is uh, a little bit more obscure. And so here's an example of that, or let me define that a little bit better. A clarification uh, change occurs when a copyist thought that their additions were necessary in order to bring about a better understanding of the text. This, this could include adding something to the text or rearranging words to remove some sort of ambiguity in the text, but it's their effort to make the text make more sense. So here's an example in John chapter 7 and verse 39. In the second half of John chapter 7, verse 39, the Greek, there's a Greek phrase that appears that literally reads, for not yet was the Spirit. The New Revised Standard Version retains that um, literal translation of this phrase in that verse. Uh, the New Revised Standard is not very popular anymore. It's been, it was a predecessor to the ESV, uh, but it was a version that actually retained this original um, intent of the phrase. Codex Vaticanus, again, one of our most prominent manuscripts, has a little different terminology. You can see here in the red, there's two words added to Codex Vaticanus. And when translated, it makes it a literal reading of, for not yet was the Holy Spirit given. And you'll find that type of translation in the New King James Version, or the King James Version for that matter. It's believed that a copyist added the word forgiven, wait, for given, not forgiven, added the word given since the original Greek could have meant that the Spirit was not in existence yet. So to bring some sort of clarification, to remove some sort of ambiguity, a copyist said, you know what, I need to clarify what is meant by the, the statement that the Holy Spirit was not yet. Because somebody could read this verse and get the idea that the Holy Spirit did not exist yet. Whereas what was trying to be conveyed in that copyist's mind was that the Holy Spirit had not been poured out yet, as is the case in Acts chapter 2. And then there's also the addition of the word holy. Some copyist, maybe the same copyist, felt the need to specify what spirit. Felt the need to emphasize that this is the Holy Spirit, not some alternative spirit. And so these words get added in there to provide clarification in the text. At least that's how it seems to happen because because the manuscript evidence supports the shorter reading without the addition of the word holy and without the addition of the word given. So sometimes intentional changes include clarification changes. Another intentional alteration to the text might be a... uh, Oh, I forgot to put that sentence up there. Another way in which an intentional variant may occur is through an effort to harmonize a manuscript, to harmonize different accounts of the same story that appear in Scripture. 
This is especially uh, abundant in the Gospels, where you have multiple accounts of events in Jesus' life or teachings of Jesus, and there's this need to make those conform to one another in the eyes of some copyists. So a harmonization change occurs when a copyist alters a particular phrase or a particular sentence to reflect the wording of another similar, maybe even more familiar phrase. So, for instance, we have Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19. In Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, and that one in Washington, it uses this phrase that is translated, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You can find that translation reflected in the English Standard Version in particular. But then you have Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus and Codex Bizet, they have a different rendering, and you can see the, the Greek words highlighted in red on the screen. And those coda, coda, codices provide a translation, but wisdom is justified by her children. You can see that reflected in the New King James Version. So one translation says that wisdom is justified by her deeds or her works. Another manuscript says wisdom is justified by her children. That seems two very different things to some degree. What's interesting is that Luke chapter 7 and verse 35 is a parallel to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19. And in almost every manuscript of Luke chapter 7 verse 35, you'll find the word for children used. So what likely happened is that a copyist changed Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19 from the term for deeds or works to the term for children so that Matthew's version would match Luke's version. That's an example of harmonization that a copyist might intentionally do to help, in his mind, improve Scripture. Another example of this comes from John chapter 19 and verse 14. In John chapter 19, verse 14, we're told that it was about the sixth hour when Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. However, there are some manuscripts of John's gospel that doesn't say sixth hour, it says third hour. And what ends up happening is that it's believed this could be an effort of a copyist to harmonize John's gospel with Mark's gospel. Because if you go to Mark chapter 9 and verse 25, it says that Jesus was crucified around the third hour. Now, so this could be a situation where a copyist says, hey, Mark's gospel and John's gospel say different times for this crucifixion. Maybe I need to fix this so people don't question it. And so John's gospel receives an adjustment to its time to reflect Mark's gospel. This is a very interesting passage, though, because there is some evidence that the term sixth hour was the mistake, and it should have originally said third hour. But that's going down a rabbit hole that we don't want to journey down tonight. Um, but a copyist got involved here and made a change at some point in time, either through misreading the text or trying to harmonize it with another gospel. There are some other passages that show in manuscripts evidence of harmonization. For instance, 
One significant one is the model prayer. You have Matthew's version of the model prayer, Matthew chapter 6. But Luke has a version of the model prayer in Luke chapter 11, I believe. And what's interesting is that in the manuscripts, there are efforts to make these two versions of the model prayer more cohesive, more harmonized with one another. Similar thing happens in manuscripts, and just I didn't want to have to make too many Greek texts up here, so I'm just talking about these two examples. But if you go to Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 26, you have two different accounts of Paul's conversion. And there were efforts in some manuscripts to make these two uh, accounts of Paul's conversion more cohesive, more harmonized. So there are additional examples of an effort by copyists to make, uh, to make efforts to change the text to reflect the same thing between two different passages. That's a harmonizational change. One final intentional mistake is a conflation change. What that means when a conflation change occurs, that is when there are two or more possible readings and the scribe or the copyist has two or more manuscripts in front of him that read differently, and he's uncertain which one is the original, so he ends up combining both versions together, usually just combining two different words into the same sentence. And so a great example of this comes from Luke chapter 24 and verse 53. So you've got Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. They have Luke 24, verse 53, say essentially that the um, disciples were continually in the temple blessing God. Emphasis on the word blessing. I've got it highlighted in red in the Greek and in the English. But then you have Codex Bizet records Luke 24, 53 using a different word. It's not the word for blessing in particular, it's a word for praising God. So the English Standard Version reflects what we can find in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. The NIV Version kind of reflects what you can find in Codex Bizet as far as the terminology being used there. And there's not a lot of variance between these two terms. They, they have some overlap in their meaning. But here's where it gets interesting. Then you can go over to Codex Alexandrinus. And it takes both words and inserts both words into the text. What might have happened is a copyist had access to, to multiple manuscripts, and one manuscript had the term for blessing God that appears in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, and he had another manuscript that had the term that appears in Codex Bizet for praising God. And what ends up happening is he's saying, I don't know which one was the original word, so I'm just going to take both words and put them into the text. And it's going to say what you can find now in the New King James Version, that they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. I'll have both words in it. A copyist may have done, that's, called, that's conflation, or taking evidence from multiple manuscripts and inserting them into one together. And sometimes a, a, a copyist would do that intentionally because he didn't know which word should be eliminated, if any for that matter. So there's only four examples I wanted to focus on with intentional mistakes. It could be a grammatical change, trying to spell a word correctly, or, or uh, taking several words that are spelled differently and harmonizing those in some fashion. 
or it could be uh, uh, changing the ending of a word so it reflects the proper pronoun on the front end. There could be clarification changes where there's some ambiguity in the text that the copyist wants to remove and eliminate for the sake of better and more consistent understanding. Then, of course, there's harmonizational changes where, we, where a copyist wants to get two accounts or two stories to match their telling of it. And then there's conflation changes where the evidence they have in front of them from manuscripts has two different terms, and they want to use both terms so that they don't make a mistake. These are intentional mistakes made by a copyist, but not intentional in the sense that they want to mess things up. These are guys that wanted to preserve God's Word to the best of their ability, and at that time, they thought the best thing to do would be to correct what they're seeing in some fashion. And so we have these kind of mistakes that appear in Scripture too. You have the unintentional and the intentional. That's the most simplistic overview of these types of variants that, that I could produce. There's much more to it than this, and there are many more types of intentional and unintentional variants that we have not gone into. What I want to do with the remainder of our time is turn your attention to some notable variants. In other words, we've talked about intentional and unintentional variants. Now let's look at some specific variations in the manuscript evidence. Some that really do affect our New Testament. Some that you are possibly even familiar with already. Some that people will gladly point out when they want to discredit Scripture. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13 to begin with. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. And I'm going to need your help tonight. And I know those who are with us online are not going to be able to hear people in the audience. But I'm going to ask for uh, some various readings of some of these verses. I will tell you online what translation we're going to read so that you can look it up in your own spare time or look it up as we go along. But Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13, I would like somebody who has an English Standard Version of the New Testament to read Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. This is the last verse of the model prayer. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13 from the English Standard Version. Done. Now, somebody who has the New King James Version, read Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. That's it in the New King James? That's the most important part. So the King James Version and the New King James Version, they have what's called the doxology of, Matthew, of, the, of the model prayer, of the Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. I just call it the model prayer's closing. And what ends up happening is some English translations preserve this phrase others do not. You can find it, I know, in uh, the New King James Version and the King James Version. It will be bracketed in uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It will be bracketed in the text of the New American Standard Version from 1995. There's an updated version of the New American Standard that will not have it. And you'll find it in the New Century Version bracketed in the text as well. But the ESV, the updated New American Standard, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the CEV, they provide it only in the footnotes. 
the earliest this phrase occurs in a manuscript is Codex Washingtonianus from the 5th century. However, it does appear in a 2nd century work called the Didache. We don't have 2nd century copies of the Didache, but we have quotes from it, and we have later manuscripts of it that show that this phrase or a portion of it was included in the, in the was known, I should say, as early as the second century. But it doesn't become prominent in manuscripts really until the eighth, ninth centuries. So we're talking the seven to eight hundreds. And it's worth mentioning that in one manuscript from the, the ninth century, scribes specifically noted that the phrase was not found in important copies known to them. So here's what's happened. This phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, that phrase does not appear in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. Scholars surmise that someone added it in order to give the model prayer a better ending. Because if you heard James read from the ESV, deliver us from evil is not really a fitting ending to a prayer in our minds. And actually, the terminology comes from a verse. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11-13 through 13 use this terminology. That's 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 through 13. So it's quite likely that a copyist felt like the prayer just didn't wrap up well and decided to utilize another portion of Scripture to help give a fitting conclusion to the prayer. And it actually may not, it may be that this wasn't written in the text of Scripture somewhere. It may be, the, the, I mentioned this document called the Didache, it, was, uh, it wasn't a biblical text. It was a text on Christian living that was around in the second century. It was created to, to talk about the practice of Christianity, to tell you about fasting and about a life of prayer and things like that. And the model prayer was recorded in it. What likely happened is Christians used the model prayer. But they, they wanted a more fit, memorized ending to go to on it. So someone came up with this. And Christians would just recite the model prayer with this ending. And it wasn't in the manuscripts, but eventually, eventually some copyist records the text of Scripture and adds in this phrase that was just an oral tradition among Christians. And it wasn't meant to be a part of the text. It was just part of their practice. And so this is one example of a notable textual variant that you might notice from time to time and that others might notice as well. That one's Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. Let's turn our attention to one of the biggest and most well-known variants in all of Scripture, and that is the ending of Mark. Mark chapter 16. And what you will find in Mark chapter 16 is something related to verses 9 through 20 for the most part. Verses 9 through 20 are known as the long ending of Mark. 
here's what happens. Oh, well, actually, before we get into that, let me see who here has a King James version of the Bible. Anybody have the King James with them? So when you get to Mark chapter 16, at verse 9, is there any indication that there's something going on in the King James Version, that there's an issue here at verse 9? Is there a footnote? Is there something in parentheses? Is there something inserted to identify an issue in Mark chapter 16, verse 9? No, not in the King James. All right, do we have somebody with the New King James? Mark chapter 16 and verse 9, is there any indication of something going on in the New King James Version. Footnote. There's a footnote. The New King James, which is an update of the King James, it does provide a footnote about Mark chapter 16, verse 9. In fact, I believe the footnote um, says verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in NU. I bet you're wondering what NU is, right? Do you see that? For those of you with the New King James Version, do you see the letters N-U, capital N, capital U? Just so you know, and I I intend to talk about this later, N-U is a reference to the standard Greek text that we have today. The uh, official standardized Greek text in existence today. The N stands for Nestle Olland. That was a couple of uh, scholars who worked on compiling the Greek text into a, a, a concise unit. So the N stands for Nestle Allen, uh, Nestle Allen 28 to be exact, because that's the edition of the Greek text that Nestle Allen has produced to this point. The U stands for the United Bible Society, which is abbreviated to UBS. And the United Bible Society, both, both Nestle Allen and the United Bible Study are based out of Germany, for the record. UBS uh, is an organization that has worked to compile a standardized Greek text. And what has happened is that the Nestle Allen Greek text and the United Bible Society Greek text now match exactly with the standardized form of the Greek text. So if you go buy a Greek text of the New Testament, it's based on the Nestle Allen and United Bible Society's um, compilation of the Greek. And so NU is the abbreviation for that official standardized Greek text. Sorry, that's an excursion that I didn't necessarily intend to get into. But, but the New King James has a footnote that says verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in the NU, in the official Greek text, as not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. So, so the New King James Version took a step beyond the King James Version and said we're going to note that there is at least in the footnotes, we're going to identify that there is some evidence that this particular section is not in some significant manuscripts. Now, let's see here. Does somebody have the New American Standard Version? What do you notice at verse, Mark chapter 16, verse 9 in the New American Standard? Does it acknowledge anything? Bracketed. Now, New American Standard has double brackets, I believe, from verse 9 through verse t- till verse 20. Double brackets around the text. I believe it also has a footnote at verse 9. And the footnote, I believe, says something along the lines of later manuscripts, MSS, if, if that abbreviation is there, means manuscripts. Later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. 
inferring that early manuscripts don't have it. So the New American Standard takes a step even beyond the New King James to put some brackets in there to let you know that, hey, there's something significant about this, something different about this section, and it provides a footnote just identifying that later manuscripts include this as opposed to early manuscripts. The English Standard Version, anybody have that? Do you notice anything around verse 9 of Mark 16 that the English Standard Version does? What does it do? It does the double brackets from verse 9 to verse 20, but it does something else right before verse 9. As a statement, in brackets, single brackets, which I've always wondered, why single, why double? Why, what, what, what do you need the double for? I don't know the answer to that for the record. But they put in, in brackets right before verse 9, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. It also has a footnote at verse 9. English Standard provides a footnote as well, a, a rather lengthy one, that provides some explanation. Uh, it says, some manuscripts in the book with, with chapter 16, verse 8, others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. Some manuscripts include after verse 8 the following and provides an additional verse. These manuscripts then continue with So it provides a lot of explanation there. Does anybody have the New International Version? Anybody have that tonight? Do you notice anything around verse 9 that the NIV does? Statement in single brackets. It does not double bracket the text. It atops the text. It provides a footnote, but some NIVs go so far as to put a solid line after verse 8. There's a, there'll be a solid line after verse 8, then a, then a little title like the ESV in brackets, italicize the text. My point is this. We went from the King James Version that does nothing. New King James Version adds a footnote. New American Standard uh, adds brackets. ESV adds a, a statement. NIV adds a solid line, as if to say, this is the end, this is addition. So what we have happening over the years, and, and I'm not trying to disparage any translation right now, but what we have happening over the years is manuscript evidence builds up and shows us whether or not, or, or provides evidence as to whether or not this particular section should be in the text. Now Mark chapter 16 is very, verses 9 through 20 is very interesting. It's absent from two of our three most important Greek manuscripts, which uh, was already mentioned as Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. Two, uh, th those are both fourth century codices that are very prominent in the uh, um, development of the Greek text. Some, of the, some early church fathers from the late second century and, and early third century showed no knowledge of this passage in their writings. Another thing that happens when we work on Greek translation, when we work on, on compiling the Greek text, is we can do comparisons with the quotations of the text from early church fathers. That helps us in determining what is the most accurate um, version of the text, in addition to having copies of the text. And many church fathers show no evidence, no knowledge of this particular um, section. Uh, let's see, it's also absent... From the earliest known manuscripts of some other languages, like the old Syriac version of the, Bi of the New Testament, which is fr from the 5th century. Um, it's absent from the earliest known manuscript of the Latin Vulgate, 
the Latin Vulgate, um, the Gospels of the last Latin Vulgate were finished in the 4th century, written by Jerome. And then a large number of Armenian manuscripts, old, old Armenian manuscripts, lack this section. So all that's to say that there's a lot of early evidence that doesn't have this text. But there are some manuscripts that do. There are actually the vast majority of manuscripts do, including the Alexandrian manuscript, which, which is an important one, the Ephraim manuscript, the Ephraim Rescriptus, Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Bizet, they all have it. There's a number of Latin manuscripts that have it, Syriac manuscripts as well. And Irenaeus, who was an early church author from the second century, he makes reference to this section of Mark chapter 16. So there is second century uh, writing of someone who shows awareness of this particular portion of Mark 16. So there's evidence for and evidence against. It's one of the more um, of the, the notable textual variants we're going to talk about tonight and next week. It's one of the ones that has strong evidence for its exclusion, but pretty good evidence for its inclusion as well. Many scholars believe this passage does not belong, not just because of the manuscript evidence, but because of the presence of several words that are not common to Mark's vocabulary. In other words, there are some expressions and some words Mark uses, that are used in verses 9 through 20 that do not appear anywhere else in the book of Mark, that do not appear anywhere else in the four Gospels, and that do not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. In particular, if you look at Mark chapter 16, just uh, from, a, from a doctrinal standpoint, something that is kind of strange here. Oh, let me get there as well. Mark chapter 16, particularly down at verse 18. The handling of serpents. You ever thought that was oddly included in there? Verse 18. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Why aren't we practicing the handling of snakes in the church? It's in the Bible, right? <laughs> well, I, th I think I might resign if the elders start making me handle snakes. Uh, but that's an oddity in the text when compared to the rest of Scripture. And so it's kind of one of those things that it's so um, uncharacteristic of the rest of Scripture that it kind of serves as evidence as to this doesn't seem like it belongs. So there are statements and phrases that, that don't seem to, to fit with the rest of Scripture as well. Now, here's the, the big thing. You look at verse uh, 15 and 16, particularly 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. We would hate to think that that verse is not part of the Bible. That's such a powerful verse. But I want you to think, if Mark 16, verse 9 through 20 doesn't belong in the text of Scripture and was a later edition, and we don't have access to that verse, does it prevent us from teaching the plan of salvation? Would the absence of Mark chapter 16 and verse 16 negatively affect our ability to teach the plan of salvation? Not at all. You still have Matthew chapter 28. You still have Acts chapter 2. You still have Romans chapter 6. You still have Acts chapter 8. You still have plenty of text. Galatians chapter 3. 
you still have plenty of texts that make reference to how we receive salvation through the waters of baptism. So even if you eliminate this text, it doesn't affect doctrine. That doctrine of baptism is still present in Scripture. It's not dependent solely on Mark chapter 16. And the evidence seems to be in favor of Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 being a later addition in some capacity. And that's why our New Testaments bracket it, italicize it, footnote it in some fashion. That's two of six notable variants that I want to address. We'll pick up the other four next Wednesday night. And I hope you'll join us because I'm trying to work through these because these are the ones that are the most significant in the sense of uh, being the most observed and the most um, acknowledged in all of the New Testament. So please join us next week as we do the last four. Let me say a quick word of prayer as we exit this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for our opportunity to study your word, and it is our prayer that the things we cover tonight aid our faith. Lord, help us to always trust in you and to trust in your word. May we go from here and, and Lord, represent you to the best of our ability and to shine as lights in the world around us. Lord, we love you. It's through your son's name we pray.